I'm a Catholic, but I've used birth control and not just the rhythm method, okay? Way too much information, Governor Christie. Way too well, much information. I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the from Pacifica Radio's KPFK in Los Angeles. This is your broadcast, as heard on 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake, 91.7 FM KYAQ on the beautiful Oregon Central Coast, Coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org, on the Progressive Voices Channel, on Netroots Radio, on Indie Media Weekly, on FYI Nation, on Radio or Not, on Radio Free Brooklyn, and of course, five days a week on Radio Sputnik. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all around swell fellow from bradblog.com. Glad you could join us for, uh, well, what will no doubt be another action-packed, thrilling adventure here. Uh, I told you this was a big week. I told you at the beginning of this week it was going to be a big week, huge week, in fact. We've got the first Republican presidential um, debate. Can we call it a debate? First Republican debate coming up this week. And uh, it's happening on the very same day. As the uh, Voting Rights Act, the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act, something that's very important to this show, to uh, to Bradblog.com, to what we've been covering for more than a decade now, and something that's frankly very important to this country. All of the things that we talk about, all of the things that you care about, only change when we change it. And we can only change these things if we're allowed to get into the voting booth and change the elected officials who can change the laws if only if we exercise that right to vote. Oh, and then fight to make sure that those votes are counted and counted accurately. But that's the way we do it in this country, short of revolution with pitchforks and torches, which we may be headed towards. But until then, it's voting. You got to vote. And this week is our 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act, which we will be celebrating tomorrow because tomorrow is actually the day. I'm looking forward to that. If all goes well, we will be uh, we'll be speaking to someone who I spoke to 10 years ago on the 40th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act from the uh, very foot of the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama. Uh, scene of the uh, civil rights battles that were uh, uh, fought 50 years ago that led directly to the Voting Rights Act. So I'm looking forward to that, and we're looking forward to covering the debates later this week as well. The Republican debates that ironically happen on the same day as the Voting Rights Act, the same Voting Rights Act that none of these Republicans give a damn about restoring since the Supreme Court gutted it back in 2013. Oh, the irony. In any event, 
Uh, we now know who will be on the stage Thursday night in primetime on Fox News for the first debate because Fox News has decided who the 10 candidates are that they are willing to give primetime uh, access to that debate. And since there's uh, 10 of them, it's probably easier to describe who will not be on the stage this week at the uh, first Republican debate, this week uh, who's, you know, political, who's run for president, run for the nomination for the Republican Party, may well, may very well be over simply because they're not on the stage in prime time on Fox News. They'll be allowed to uh, what they're called the kitty table in the middle of the afternoon when nobody will watch them. We'll try to do our best to cover it on this program. But they're not in prime time. And so the, the, the candidates who will not be participating in the first Republican presidential debate because Fox News decided they didn't want them to would be Carly Fiorina, the uh, uh, failed CEO of Hewlett Packard, uh, Rick Perry, Governor Rick Perry, the longest serving governor of Texas ever. Rick Perry not allowed to participate in the Fox News debate. Uh, and uh, even even a felony, two felony charges against them against him. One was just dropped. The other one moves forward. Even felony indictments against him uh, couldn't keep him out of the debate, but Fox News could. Bobby Jindal, the current governor of uh, Louisiana. Lindsey Graham, the current senator from South Carolina. Rick Santorum, who was uh, the formerly uh, senator from Pennsylvania. He was run out on a rail by voters in Pennsylvania, but he did come in second place last year in or four years ago. Well, not even four years ago. What, three years? I can't do the math anymore. In 2012, Santorum came in second place on the Republican side, did not win the nomination. Uh, Governor George Pataki, two-term governor from New York State, he's not allowed in the debate. And uh, Governor Jim uh, Jim Gilmore, former governor of where Maryland? I Virginia. Think? Virginia, thank you. Governor, they, they are not allowed to debate uh, on Fox News. We'll see if CNN allows them in subsequent debates. And frankly, I'm surprised that we're even talking about this much presidential politics this early in the uh, in the season. But uh, there's a lot going on there. And uh, there's now that we're actually starting the debates this week, there's a lot going on. And of course, with Donald Trump, how could you not talk about it? I think the day that Donald Trump got into the race, I think the very first thing we said on the show, I think I, I believe I, I'm going to have to go back and check this. But I said, I think Donald Trump just broke the Republican primary. And while nobody else thought that was the case at the time, I did. And I think we've been proven right. And we've got some more information from the polls on that. We also have some more information for on the Democratic side of the ledger in the polls, some movement there. Uh, we're going to get to all of that in this program. But first, President Barack Obama issued a blistering rebuttal to opponents of the Iran nuclear deal today, according to CNN, as he sought to bolster congressional support for the agreement with a major speech about the Iran deal on Wednesday. He declared that lawmakers in Congress risk damaging American credibility if they vote to scuttle the deal and equated them with those who pushed for war with Iraq. It's those hardliners chanting death to America who have been most opposed to the deal, Obama said. They're making common cause with the Republican caucus. 
He then went on to use two points in history to underscore his own points, John F. Kennedy's push for diplomacy with the Soviet Union and the vote to invade Iraq in 2002. Obama warned that U.S. global standing was at stake in this deal. Here's a bit of his speech today at American University. What's more likely to happen, should Congress reject this deal, is that Iran would end up with some form of sanctions relief without having to accept any of the constraints or inspections required by this deal. So in that sense, the critics are right. Walk away from this agreement and you will get a better deal for Iran. Now, because more sanctions won't produce the results that the critics want, we have to be honest. Congressional rejection of this deal leaves any U.S. administration that is absolutely committed to preventing Iran from getting a nuclear weapon with one option, another war in the Middle East. I say this not to be provocative. I am stating a fact. Does anyone really doubt that the same voices now raised against this deal will be demanding that whoever is president bomb those nuclear facilities? So let's not mince words. The choice we face is ultimately between diplomacy or some form of war. Maybe not tomorrow. Maybe not three months from now, but soon. That was President Obama at American University today uh, trying to uh, stoke congressional approval for his uh, for his deal with Iran. Not just his deal, but this is a a major deal between him, uh, Iran, uh, between the U.S., Iran, Russia, China, France, Great Britain, and Germany. It's been hashed out over two years, and it is facing uh, an uphill battle, at least with Republicans in Congress. Here to talk about this and a bit of a complaint about Bernie Sanders is our old friend David Swanson. He's a peace activist, blogger, radio host of Talk Nation Radio. He's the author of several books, among them War is a Lie and When the World Outlawed War, which uh, you can read about and purchase at his blogs, warisacrime.org or davidswanson.org. He's also the director of worldbeyondwar.org and campaign coordinator for rootsaction.org. David Swanson, sir, welcome back to the broadcast. Hi, Brad. Great to be here. Great to have you. All right, my friend. Finally, a speech for P- I should add, by the way, you are also the conscience of the broadcast. We turn to you. Uh, for issues uh, where we need to be straightened out. So feel free to straighten me out. Uh, A a speech for peace here today by Barack Obama. Finally, I'm sure you're happy about it, or at least I thought you would be. And then I saw your your latest uh, blog item today over at uh, warisacrime.org with the headline, Obama talks peace, but throws in a bit of Cheney. All right, David Swanson, uh, what happened today in this speech? What did he uh, talk about as you see it, and how did he do? Well, I'm at least three-quarters happy. I I mean, (laughs) here we've been stopping this war on Iran for 
a decade or more. You know, there have been these big surges for it in 2007 and this year and other times, and nobody ever announces, you know, you've prevented a war, but it's it's big news. It's worthy uh, work. Uh, it's wonderful to see the president go and draw on that tradition of Kennedy's great speech at American University, which was, of course, better <laughs> because Kennedy was proposing that the United States disarm and the United States work uh, for peace rather than uh, using war at all going forward. Um, my, you know, my concern is the the bit at the end there uh, in the clip you played and other moments in the speech where President Obama suggests that Iran is trying to get a nuclear weapon, that that, that is some kind of a threat to the United States, uh, and, and that war would be an option. Uh, war would be the only option left. It would be an option uh, that would somehow prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. I don't think it would. I think it would encourage it, short of a totally devastating war. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, you know, I, I love that for once President Obama wants peace. I love that for once he's using diplomacy rather than war. I wish he would do the same in eight other places on Earth. Uh, and I love that Senator Kane and Senator Boxer, and you know, these senators are starting to, Senator Sanders, are, are starting to come around and say they, they support this deal and they don't want war. And, and Obama deserves high praise for uh, opposing this to the, to the option of war and, and discussing war as the undesirable evil that it is. Uh, but, but I knew there was the a big but time, coming, yeah. <laughs> well, at the same time, he's pushing the propaganda of his opponents. He's pushing the idea that Iran is trying to get a nuclear weapon and that that is some kind of a threat to the United States. He, he has zero evidence, absolutely zero evidence. My... Uh, my friend Gareth Porter, who's in the next room here, who's doing an event uh, here in Virginia tonight, uh, has a book called The Manufactured Crisis. I mean, he's researched this more than anyone on Earth. Uh, and there is absolutely no evidence that Iran is trying to pursue a nuclear weapon. And so when Obama talks at length about nuclear weapons and says that he, you know, his deal has halted Iran's uh, nuclear uh, program for the first time and so forth, uh, you know, that, that's extremely dishonest and misleading. He doesn't specify that, that what's being halted is an energy program, you know, and nobody's going to pick up on that. Uh, it's, it's like the, the Bush-Cheney gang putting 9-11 and Saddam Hussein in the same breath over and over again, mm -hmm. uh, whether or not they explicitly said Saddam did 9-11. They convinced most of the country of it. Uh, and Obama and his uh, colleagues and supporters and his opponents are all pushing this false understanding, which is ultimately counterproductive if you're trying to avoid a war. You don't run around convincing Americans that Iran is a threat trying to get nukes and nuke us. You know, that's not helpful. Tim Kaine, in well, his it, let, let me Let me press you on that. And actually, we've got a, a clip from uh, Tim Kaine in a second, but let me press you on that. Um, it, it, you say it's not helpful. And um, let, let yeah. me just press you on that. Isn't it helpful? Isn't it uh, necessary in this case to uh, to draw this in stark terms so both Congress and the American people understand that, hey, either we take this deal or we march to war. Uh, is, is your concern with, with those two choices, or is it with the idea that we are suggesting that Iran was working on a, uh, a nuclear arms program, which you correctly say there's no real evidence, uh, or any evidence, I, I guess, that they actually are working on a nuclear arms program? 
look, Iran, unlike the United States, was not violating the, new, the non-proliferation treaty. The United States is blatantly violating it by not disarming. The, the, Iran has been in compliance. Iran is agreeing to extreme inspections no other nation on earth is asked to agree to. Uh, it, it, it's agreeing to those. Uh, the, it's agreeing to them needed, with this deal, but not prior to this deal, right? I mean, they haven't uh, given unprecedented access prior to they've, this they've they've certainly uh, been open to negotiations and mm-hmm. offered to export the uranium and so forth uh, over the years. They've offered uh, everything on the table. Uh, Bush didn't want to talk to them. Uh, Obama took a took a long time getting around to talking to them. Uh, various demands before talks could begin and so forth. Uh, Iran has been open to this kind of a deal uh, and has not been violating any law, not been threatening anyone, not been working to develop a nuclear weapon. So not, nothing was needed. There was no problem to be solved. The problem is the warmongers uh, in the in the Congress and in Washington D.C. Most of them Republicans, some Democrats joining in, who want a war on Iran, who want vicious sanctions or military action to overthrow the government of Iran and bring Iran under uh, U.S. domination. That's the problem. So that's a problem that this deal solves. And that's why this is a wonderful deal. This is a deal to prevent warmongers in Washington from getting a war on Iran. But it's not a deal to prevent Iran from attacking Americans with nukes. Uh, and, and so I think we ought to be honest about that, uh, because if you convince the public that this is a deal to prevent those those scary, sneaky Iranians from getting nukes and attacking us, then you've got to sell people that this is a really hardcore, serious deal. If you, if you explain to people honestly that this is, this is gravy on top of a situation that was, that was you know, mm-hmm. not really a problem, uh, except to the extent that nuclear energy is a problem everywhere and we shouldn't really be spreading it around the globe, uh, then I think you're better off. And, and I think uh, you're better able to bring the senators around as well, which is, which is what we've got to do right now. Well, speaking of those senators, you were both, uh, as, as you were with uh, Obama here, sort of uh, praising him on one set and one hand and uh, uh, being critical on another. And I applaud you for that, by the way, because we seem to be in this world where you either love someone or hate someone. There is no middle ground. And and you uh, honestly find that uh, middle ground. You're critical where necessary and supportive uh, where appropriate. Uh, to that end, uh, Senator Tim Kaine uh, of Virginia, you you uh, posted his uh, comments on the Senate floor concerning the Iran deal, and you both praised him, uh, and you had some concerns about what he had to say. I've pulled out the part that I think is what you were most concerned about. I want to play a, qu- a quick audio from that. Here's uh, Senator Tim Kaine on uh, the Iran deal. Mr. President, if Iran breaks this agreement nuclear sanctions can be reimposed. The United States reserves the right to sanction Iran for activities unrelated to its nuclear program, including support for terrorism, arms shipments, and human rights violations. Finally, and importantly, the U.S. and our partners maintain the ability to use military action if Iran seeks to obtain a nuclear weapon in violation of the deal. The knowledge of the Iranian program gained through extensive inspections will improve the effectiveness of any military action and the clarity of Iran's commitment to the world in the first paragraph of the agreement that it will never pursue nuclear weapons will make it easier to gain international support for military action should Iran violate their unequivocal pledge. 
That was Senator Tim Kaine, Democrat of Virginia, calling for uh, approval of the uh, Iran uh, agreement or the Iran deal. Uh, David Swanson, uh, you said that what you heard in there was a, uh, a threat. Uh, that the U.S. can still, as you describe, illegally, immorally, and disastrously launch a war, and that that threat itself alone is a violation of the U.N. Charter. Uh, is that correct? Is that where your uh, criticism with uh, Senator Kane lies? Yeah, the United Nations Charter coming up on 70 years uh, this autumn uh, <laughs> bans the use or threat of war. Uh, and here is a, a United States senator, one who claims above all of them to uphold the rule of law and proper uh, balance of powers and congressional war declarations and so forth, uh, openly claiming the right, <laughs> which doesn't exist in any legal document, the right to impose sanctions on another nation and to launch a war against against another nation. Uh, and this is, this is the guy on the right side who's declaring the right position in support of defending this deal, you know? Uh, and, uh, I mean, I think that's outrageous. I think it would be heard not just in Iran, but in other nations abroad uh, as rogue, as illegal, as barbaric. Uh, there is no such right. Uh, and other, other nations don't talk that way. So, so, I mean, these guys aren't angels or devils. You don't, we're not denouncing a, a person here. Uh, Tim Kaine uh, is, is now perhaps the leader on the right side, uh, taking the right position and speaking out. Bernie Sanders hasn't made a speech like that on the floor yet. Uh, Barbara Boxer, uh, you know, has come in behind Tim Kaine, and she also is talking about the Iranian nuclear threat, but she's on the right side. Uh, you know, Alan Grayson wants to be in the Senate, and he's on the wrong side. You know, he wants a war. Uh, but uh, you can't you can't keep uh, this idea that Iran is an enemy that needs to be badgered with a stick and the threat of war. Uh, that's not what Kennedy was talking about when he talked about international cooperation in his speech at American University. Well, you know, it, it's it is interesting, and I've always uh, found this remarkable when we hear these senators talking about uh, going to war with Iran. When they talk about we ought to bomb them back to the Stone Age. Imagine, imagine if anyone in Iran was saying that about the U.N., any you know, elected high official was talking about the need to go to war with the U.S. I mean, it just wouldn't happen because, uh, well, they would get that war, I suspect. Um, all right, since you mentioned Bernie Sanders, uh, David Swanson, and originally I, I wanted to have you on to talk about this prior to um, Obama's speech today, uh, you are critical of Bernie Sanders. Now, before we get to why, uh, I, I presume, are you a supporter of Bernie Sanders in general? And, and if so, why? Why do you support him? Uh, and then we can talk about why you don't. I don't think I have an answer to that question okay. if I support him in general. I don't think he's an angel or a devil either. Mm -hmm. He does a lot of things I agree with and a lot of things I disagree with. Uh, you know, I, I love his economic policies. His environmental policies are far above average. Uh, he, he's right on all sorts of minor uh, items in the U.S. budget and on revenue sources, he would tax the rich. Uh, you know, but there's this little item uh, in the U.S. budget that, that takes up about 54 percent of uh, mm -hmm. of it of discretionary spending called militarism, a and he has almost nothing to say about it. You try to figure out if he wants to cut that spending, and if so, how much, and and 
you can't. It's it's just not there. He's he's not talking about it. Has he been asked about it by media? And I know that he doesn't get a lot of time on the press, even though he's you know drawing the largest crowds of of the entire uh, of either party, uh, larger even than Donald Trump. Um, has he been asked about this? Has he been pressed at all by the uh, media on that issue? Well, of course, the other candidates aren't talking about it either. Mm-hmm. I'm holding him to a higher standard here, and most of them are never asked about it. So it's all all nice from the point of view of the, of the corporate media and the candidates. On rare occasions at events, uh, Bernie Sanders has been asked about militarism. When he's asked about his support for the F-35 fighter, uh, product, partial production and stationing in Vermont and other uh, military waste and spending in Vermont, he, he avoids the question. I've never seen him answer it at all. Uh, When he's asked about militarism, he talks about auditing the Defense Department, the one department that's never audited, uh, which is great. But he avoids saying anything about cutting it or or, or expanding it. Uh, he'll talk about veterans and uh, support for veterans and the problems that veterans face and suicide. He'll never talk about ceasing to create more veterans. Uh, when he's asked about the Middle East, he, he says, let's let Saudi Arabia do it. Saudi Arabia has a big military. They should be taking the lead in destroying the Middle East and making everything worse for everyone and killing lots of people. Why? <laughs> you know, why should those madmen from that uh, insane dictatorship uh, be taking over uh, the war waging in the Middle East? Why shouldn't there be an alternative uh, to war. Uh, why not give a smart answer on this subject the way he does on on so many other subjects? Well, but, why? Yeah, but why is he not giving that smart answer? Is it because he is a supporter of militarism, or is it because he is, uh, or is it because he's running for president? And he realizes that politics is the uh, the art of of compromise, I guess. And uh, you know, he's already got enough folks out there gunning for him. Um, does he really want to, uh, you know, kick the uh, military-industrial hornet's nest as well at this point? Uh, and actually, let me let me let you respond to that. But I want to just toss in here, you know, last uh, week or two ago, uh, we had Tia Oso, uh, the leader of the uh, Black uh, Black Lives Matters movement, who interrupted Bernie Sanders at the uh, Progre- and uh, Martin O'Malley at the Progressive Netroots Nation conference in Arizona, and. Uh, it caused a lot of controversy. It caused a lot of progressives to be angry at her, at the entire uh, Black Lives Matter movement, uh, saying that, hey, what are you doing? You're hurting our chances. We finally got a, a, you know, a, a, a progressive, an outspoken progressive uh, Democratic socialist who's running for the nomination. And here you want to cause problems within the family, so to speak. Uh, are, are you causing problems within the family? Does that hurt Bernie Sanders' chance, does all of this just make it easier for Hillary to walk on, uh, walk on towards her uh, coronation and, and receive the nomination? Uh, well, you know, uh, I'm advocating ignoring this stuff until the election is relatively close. I, I think. Uh, yeah, good avoiding... luck with that. Good luck with that, Dave. <laughs> yeah, well, I keep I'm trying, not, but I can't. I, I'm not advocating. Uh, I'm talking about this because you bring it up, and I like you. I'm not advocating <laughs> talking about this. I'm not advocating supporting Hillary or Bernie or inviting them to events where they will inevitably create these divisions. Uh, I think we have enough on our plate with Iran and the wars and the. T- EPP and uh, and we shouldn't be distracted by the, this bread and circuses. Um, no, you, I, I but you called out Bernie Sanders. You you've got Roots Actions. Rootsaction.org has a uh, um, 
a petition. I, I, up. I have I have a job, Brad. I work for RootsAction.org, oh. and I more or less agree with it. But I don't make every decision. As no, to I, the well, priority. I understand that, but and I'm not trying to be uh, critical. I'm asking you because actually, I'm in favor of democracy. I'm in favor of Black Lives Matters interrupting uh, uh, the candidates. In fact, you know, just in the days immediately following that protest, Bernie yeah. Sanders started speaking more about institutional uh, racism. So I'm I'm fine calling them out, and that seems to be what Roots Action is doing here, but I'm just wondering, does it end up hurting the candidate uh, and hurting the cause more than well, to, helps it? To, to inject the topic of militarism and mm-hmm. the single biggest item in the budget into the discussion cannot possibly benefit Hillary Clinton, who is demonstrably worse uh, than Bernie Sanders and arguably many of the Republicans and certainly the Green Party on that topic. I mean, she's a disaster. Um, so I, how, how raising that topic and, and forcing the candidates to take a position and have a foreign policy, for goodness sakes, uh, could possibly benefit someone who has a disastrous record uh, is beyond me. Now, to answer your first question, uh, why won't Bernie go there, uh, I think in part because he has a very mixed record. You know, he's backed some wars, opposed other wars. He's been uh, very loyal to uh, giving free U.S. weapons to Israel to use in their wars and has just in very recent times been been compelled to move a little bit away from that. You know, his supporters on economic and environmental and other issues have moved significantly on Israel-Palestine, and he hasn't, and that makes things difficult. Um, as to his, his strategy of whether, you know, he's just trying to, to, to not displease anyone, you know, public opinion is strongly in favor of cutting military spending and taxing the rich. Both of those are very controversial among the rich people and the corporate media and so forth. On one of them, he's extremely outspoken. On the other, he's very quiet. So I, I think, uh, you know, you'd have to ask him where the strategy comes from. Well, to reply to the first point that you made, and it's a good point, but to reply to that, how would this possibly help Hillary? Well, the, the calculation perhaps, by Bernie Sanders, and I am i don't know, I have no inside knowledge here, I'm just speculating, that, you know, he's taking a lot of uh, potentially controversial positions, and he's trying to go, you know, to, to that uh, economic uh, uh, populist uh, direction that is so far working pretty well. And I guess I'm wondering if his calculation here is, hey, you know what, I'm already ruffling enough feathers on Wall Street. I don't need to get the military-industrial society up up against me as well. So maybe that's one that I can leave aside. I mean, look, uh, David, uh, uh, speaking with David Swanson, by the way, uh, you were a Kucinich, Dennis Kucinich supporter years ago. I think you even worked for him, if I remember correctly. Uh, his campaign was almost solely based on ending foreign wars, reducing U.S. Uh, militarism, and he got crushed and attacked as thanks. So I'm thinking, you know, maybe it's possible that Bernie has taken note of that and realizes that running as an economic populist is the way to actually win, as opposed to just making the good point about, uh, you know, decreasing U.S. militarism and then uh, paying a price for that, whether it's in the primary or in in a, a potential general election. Entirely plausible. I mean, you'd have to ask him. Uh, I, I can't tell you that, that he's thinking that or he's not thinking that, but it's entirely plausible. Uh, but I think you could make a strong case, both that he's going to eventually have to take a position, that it looks very odd to have a website with 
positions on all sorts of issues and nothing on the majority of what the U.S. government does. To just pretend that the military doesn't exist looks very strange. He's going to have to, at some point, have a foreign policy, have a budget proposal, have a, ha- have a, a position in favor of shrinking or enlarging the military. And you can also make a very strong argument uh, that the corporate forces that are, that are going to align against him if he opposes tons of military spending are already aligned against him. And the popular uh, crowds that support him are going to support him even more and grow even larger uh, if he opposes uh, military spending. He, he was asked, he was accused on an interview, I've hear, I heard you want to cut the military by 50%. And he said, oh, no, no, no. But he never said how much he did want to cut it by. He ought to have said... You know, doing that would leave the U.S. far and away the biggest military spender on Earth. It would take us back to roughly 2001 levels. We would have hundreds of billions of dollars. We could cut taxes for working people. We could pay off debt. And we could have everything at home and abroad that anyone's ever dreamed of, free college, uh, end starvation and poverty, and on and on. Uh, I mean, that would have been the sort of smart answer you ought to be able to expect from someone like Bernie Sanders, uh, and instead he, he runs away from it. Well, it is curious, and I do hope that the effort at RootsAction.org and the petition you guys have over there looks like you're almost to your goal of 15,000 signatures in a very short time calling on Bernie Sanders uh, you know, to, to start speaking about issues of war, militarism, and foreign policy. He has been uh, ducking that issue, and maybe, uh, as with the Black Lives Matter uh, protests, this will force him out, force his hand on that issue. Uh, David Swanson, keep up the good work, my friend. Always great to talk to you. Check out his work at warisacrime.org. Go to davidswanson.org and buy some of his very, very smart books. And uh, thank you, David. I, I hope you don't, uh, you don't mind coming back uh, throughout the political season. I know you want to avoid the horse race as much as I do, but I think now is the time to, to call out these folks and let's find out what the hell their positions are or aren't. Absolutely. Thanks, Brad. Glad to any time. Thank you, David. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with much more Bradcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. We've got some breaking news here. Uh, Came in over the break here. This is just uh, the day before the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act, the landmark Voting Rights Act. We're planning on talking about it on tomorrow's show a great deal. 
Uh, we we'll actually be speaking to someone uh, at the base of the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama. But uh, as we went to break, we got word uh, about a big decision down in the state of Texas coming, as I say, just one day before the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act, which was gutted in no small measure by the Supreme Court two summers ago. Um, One of the most conservative federal appeals court in the country has now struck down the Texas voter suppression law, according to Ian Milheiser over at Think Progress. A unanimous panel of the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit uh, has issued their opinion. The, the opinion was written by a George W. Bush appointee, finding that Texas's photo ID restriction law violates the Voting Rights Act, violates the part of the Voting Rights Act that is still standing and must, at the very least, be significantly weakened, according to Ian Milheiser. Uh, let's go to Ian right now and get some more details on this. Ian Milheiser is a, uh, a constitutional law expert over at Think Progress. Ian, uh, Ian Milheiser, welcome back to the broadcast. Great to be here. Thanks so much. Sure. I uh, really appreciate you coming in on short notice. This seems like it's very, very good news. This was the law, and, and help me if I uh, get the details uh, correct here. This was the law that a, uh, a federal court in Texas struck down last year. The Republicans have been trying to pass this since at least 2011 to restrict uh, uh, voters. They must show a, a very small list of photo ID uh, approved state-issued photo IDs at the polling place before they can vote. Opponents have said this would uh, keep as, mon- as many as, uh, I think, 600,000 already registered voters from being able to cast their vote. The judge last year struck it down, said it was unconstitutional, said it was a poll tax. But the Republicans appealed that case, and uh, now you've got this conservative panel, uh, conservative appeals court, agreeing with the lower court. Do I understand that correct? Yeah, no, I, I agree with, with most of that. I mean, this was, was a very conservative judge who wrote the opinion, Judge Haynes, who is, is a George W. Bush appointee. Um, the opinion wasn't as sweeping as the one we got from the trial judge a year ago, mm-hmm. but it will do an effective job of, um, you know, if it's ultimately upheld, of shutting down the, um, much of the mischief that this law would cause. Um, so what the court got is they got that voter ID laws do not really serve any do not really serve the purpose that everyone says that they're supposed or that their supporters say they're supposed to serve. You know, you know, what you always hear when you talk to supporters of the laws is they claim that there's all this voter fraud out there and we need this law in order to prevent voter fraud. And the court, you know, recognized at least they honored the lower court's finding that there just isn't that much voter fraud. They also said that what this law actually does is it disproportionately attacks black voters, it disproportionately discriminates against Latino voters, it disproportionately disenfranchises lower income voters. And so, you know, it seemed like the court got that this was an attempt to dress up something that looks like a legitimate um, voter regulation in order to really do something else, which was to prevent groups like racial minorities and low-income voters who tend to prefer Democrats over Republicans from casting a ballot. 
And that was an argument that the uh, the judge in her, I think it was 147-page ruling last year, just before the general election, completely rejected, said that there is no evidence that this is about voter fraud, stopping voter fraud, that voter fraud is uh, almost non-existent, at least the type of voter fraud that would be blocked by these photo ID restrictions. And uh, and and at the time, uh, Rick Perry was still the governor of Texas. He, it's since been replaced by Greg Abbott, who was his attorney general at the time and who fought for this law, claiming it was needed to stop voter fraud. And now you're saying the appeals court has has rejected that argument pretty much out of hand at this point. Well, I mean, what they did was, you know, when you're an appeals court, you have an obligation to follow the findings that, or at least to give a great deal of deference to the factual findings of the trial court, and they gave the appropriate deference here. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, this wasn't a total victory for the good guys. Um, the the, The trial court had not only said that this law has the effect of discriminating against racial minorities, mm-hmm. but, that, but they all went further. They said the whole purpose of it, the intent of the lawmakers who passed it, was to engage in discrimination. The appeals court was a little more skeptical of that, um, and they, they asked the, uh, the trial court to take another look at that question under a standard that's going to be you know, a pretty difficult standard mm-hmm. um, to prove that intent exists. And that matters a great deal if the court courts ultimately conclude that there wasn't discriminatory intent here, because if there wasn't discriminatory intent, then um, that means that there's less there's less remedies available. Most importantly, it's not possible to force to bring Texas back in under the old Voting Rights Act regime, where they had to pre-clear all their new voter laws with officials in Washington, D.C. before they took it back. So it's not a total victory, but it's still a victory. And and it's still, you know, again, assuming it's upheld, going to do a lot to prevent this law from disenfranchising people. And and just to help people understand that who aren't as familiar, I guess, as you and I with the Voting Rights Act, essentially there's a number of sections in in that uh, act. uh, And really the the landmark uh, central part of that Voting Rights Act was sex. Section 5, which requires states, uh, other jurisdictions that have a history of racial discrimination at the polling place, it requires them to get pre-clearance from the federal government in one way or another, from the DOJ or from a, a circuit court uh, panel in D.C., uh, to require to, to get approval for any changes to election law before those laws can go into effect. Uh, that was Section 5. That was essentially what was gutted for now by the Supreme Court, which leaves Section 2, which uh, outlaws discrimination in all 50 states. And that's what they were challenging under. But in this case, they were also, the plaintiffs were also saying, hey, this was done on purpose. It was done with the effect to discriminate. Therefore, Texas must be put back in to that pre-clearance regime and forced in the future, even though Section 5 was somewhat gutted, uh, Texas would be the first one to be forced in the future to get approval of their voting laws before they took effect. And that is what you're saying this appeals court is now questioning and has sent it back down for another look uh, to, to to the lower court because they're saying, well, it had the effect 
of discrimination, but that was not why they did it. There's not enough evidence that that was their intent. Right. So they sent it back down to look at the question of intent. Um, you know, and, and like you said, I mean, Section 5, it was arguably the single most important part of the Voting Rights Act. I mean, where it comes from is it comes from the fact that voter suppressors are very nimble. So, you know, in, in the Jim Crow era, um, you know, the state would pass a law saying you couldn't vote um, in a primary election unless you were white. And, and, you know, and then that law would get struck down. So they say, okay, well, we'll just delegate to the parties to decide whether or not racial minorities can vote in the primary. And the parties would say, oh, no, we're not going to let them vote. And that would get struck down. So they come up with some other way to keep them from, from voting. So then, and that would eventually would get struck down. So they move the polling place, or they come up with a poll tax, or they come up with a, with a literacy tax. And you know, what, what happened was that the states were coming up with new ways to suppress the vote faster than the courts could strike down the old ways. Um, Section 5 was supposed to stop that. They did stop that for a while. You know, Section 5 said that you couldn't pass a new voting law of any kind. It couldn't take effect until after either a federal judge or the Department of Justice mm-hmm. looked at it and made sure it wouldn't go into voting, it wouldn't engage in voter suppression. Section 5 was basically deactivated by the Supreme Court two years ago. But if you can show that a state has engaged in intentional racial voter discrimination, then a different provision of the Voting Rights Act allows that state to be brought back in under this preclearance regime. And so that's the big victory here, is if we can say that not only can Texas not do this, but for the next, you know, however long, until it qualifies for a bailout, um, Texas um, has to submit all of its laws to federal officials to make sure that it's not engaging in racist voter discrimination. But that's a victory that has not yet come. That's what the question is that has been sent down. As you say, Ian Milheiser, all of those laws which were eventually struck down, they were struck down too late. They were struck down after the election. And that's why the Voting Rights Act was so important, because it required those laws to get approval before they would disenfranchise voters. And right now, we have no protection against that. And people were, in fact, kept from voting in Texas last year uh, uh, because of this law, because of this photo ID restriction. Now we're going to take another look, I guess, at the lower court. And the problem is, I think that I, I don't think there's any real question in truth, about why Republicans want to uh, have these photo ID restrictions. It is clearly to keep certain voters from being able to cast their vote, certain voters who happen to be, uh, you know, poor minorities, uh, you know, people who tend to vote Democrat. But proving that, proving that somehow in a court of law, that's very difficult. And that is uh, where the question will now uh, come back to the lower court. How do you prove that one way or another? Correct? That's right. And it's, it, you're exactly right. It's very difficult to prove intent. I mean, it's difficult for a lot of reasons. It's difficult because there's a whole lot of lawmakers that vote on a bill. And even if one of them have, have, has a racist intent, does that mean that the overarching intent of the bill was, mm-hmm. was racism? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's difficult because um, no one's a mind reader. Yeah. Um, it, you, you know, it, 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 it is a difficult task that I think is before the plaintiffs at this stage. But if they can clear that bar, 
um, then it would be a huge victory because it, would, it wouldn't just prevent this kind of voter, this particular voter suppression law, but it will prevent Texas from engaging in a lot of more voter suppression in the future. Boy, wouldn't that be nice. Or as they might say in Texas, boy, howdy. Uh, thank you, Ian Milheiser. Really appreciate uh, you jumping in here at the last second. Uh, this does seem like uh, good news, very good news. We'll find out if it's very, very, very good news, I guess, uh, somewhere uh, in, in the future as this case moves forward. Ian Melheiser, constitutional law expert from thinkprogress.org. Always great uh, talking to you, my friend. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. Wow. Amazingly good news, and amazingly uh, good news that it comes the, the day before the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, you know, in one sense, uh, when that decision came down last year from the circuit court, I mean, the judge in that case absolutely destroyed, absolutely destroyed that law. Uh, she found uh, Judge uh, Nelva Gonzalez Ramos found in her ruling that the uh, SB 14, that was the rule, that was the law that uh, Republicans had passed in Texas, creates an unconstitutional burden on the right to vote, has an impermissible, impermissible discriminatory effect against Hispanics and African-Americans, and, and this was the key part we were talking about with Ian there, and was imposed with an unconstitutional discriminatory purpose. That's the question that still remains open, as I understand this. Uh, and she went on to write, the court further holds that SB 14 constitutes an unconstitutional poll tax. So that will serve to strike down at least this version of the law. Uh, the uh, Republicans, as they are wont, will probably change it in some fashion and try again. Uh, and or they'll take this all the way up to the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court has not actually dealt with the constitutionality, the specifically the constitutionality of these types of very restrictive uh, uh, polling place voting laws. And so there's more to come here. But the good news is, at least for now, in Texas, uh, hundreds of thousands of voters as, uh, who are already registered will finally will now be allowed to vote again. And millions of voters in Texas or, or uh, unregistered voters who might like to register and vote but don't have the required, the very specific type of ID that's required to vote, those millions of voters now will be able to register and may be able to actually cast their vote in the state of Texas. Getting that vote counted and counted accurately, well, that's another story. That's another fight for another day. We will take this victory today, the day before the Landmark Voting Rights Act turns 50. Good, very, very good news. And we will be talking, as I said, about the Voting Rights Act and the 50th anniversary. Much more on tomorrow's broadcast. All right. Let's take a quick break and find out where the hell we are and uh, what we have time uh, left for here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman. From Bradblog.com. Well, that was uh, 
That was a surprising bit of good news uh, today, Desi Toyin. I know. That's crazy. It's just, um, uh, you know, especially the timing of it now with the uh, 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights the Act coming up. The day before the 50th anniversary comes that good news. Yeah. Yeah. Really good news. And uh, we will, as I said at the top of the show, we will have more on the Voting Rights Act on tomorrow's program on the actual 50th anniversary. Um, when when we had planned to talk about it. That was a nice surprise, however, and so uh, we'll see where that goes from here. Um, but good news. I'm happy. Of course, that has shuffled the deck for today and my, uh, my plans to talk about, uh, well, presidential horse race news. I can hear the people, the upset people now. What? Oh, they're crying, no I'm sure. Horse race news? What? <laughs> and actually, as usual, it's more than horse race news uh, that we cover here. But uh, so I'll, I'll just very quickly, uh, a couple of points. Um, we were talking about uh, Bernie Sanders earlier in the program with David Swanson. And uh, it should be noted here that uh, his he is still closing in on Hillary Clinton in New Hampshire. While the uh, corporate media is sort of obsessed with uh, the Donald Trump phenomenon, understandably, they're not really paying that close attention to what's going on on the Democratic side of the ledger. And I think the fact that they aren't uh, is, you know, perhaps explains why uh, Sanders is not gaining the national traction in at least in as much as he is locally in New Hampshire and Iowa. So uh, where, you know, that's where the uh, voters are actually focusing on the candidates, focusing on the Democrats. And uh, the new WMUR poll out of New Hampshire now shows that uh, the uh, Vermont senator, Bernie Sanders, is uh, chipping away at Hillary Clinton's lead. He is now within six percentage points in New Hampshire. That is pretty much the margin of error for this particular poll is 5.9 percent margin of error. So it is largely at this point in New Hampshire, a statistical tie for Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. And uh, that's with five percentage, five percent supporting Vice President Joe Biden, who ain't even running. So uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of the deck to be shuffled in the uh, days, weeks, months ahead, no doubt. But uh, if you're not watching that Sanders race, you should be. That Sanders-Clinton race, you should be. Um, okay, what else do I... I have only a few more uh, minutes here. Oh, okay, on the Republican side of the ledger, some movement there. John Kasich, the governor of Ohio, is suddenly doing surprisingly well. He's doing surprisingly well nationally. He's doing well enough to have made the cut, but just barely for the Fox News debate that's going to happen uh, this week. And, uh, we, you know, we covered him when he came out. Uh, I think we did mo- uh, an entire show on, uh, on John Kasich. Well, we did a lot about. on yeah. him, yes. And um, and it was largely because uh, who the hell is this guy? Because nobody knew him. Well, he is making headway. He's making headway nationally, and he's making headway in New Hampshire. And once again, that's where it's going to be uh, important because once the people start voting, everything changes. So in one respect, pay no attention to these polls. In another respect, pay attention to these polls. <laughs> okay, that's not contradictory that at all. How's that for advice <laughs> for you? Um, we can't go into the details here, but uh, again, but suffice to say, Donald Trump is absolutely dominating the Republican field, dominating it. When everyone thought his candidacy was a joke, we said it wasn't. And, uh, well, it might be a joke, but it's not to him and not to the Republican voters. 
And the Republican Party is absolutely freaking out about it. They have no idea what to do. They have no idea how, if ever, Donald Trump actually gets out of this race. Martin Longman wrote at Washington Monthly last week that the right hasn't just been sold a bill of goods on things like voter fraud and Benghazi and Obamacare. They've also been promised a bunch of things that the Republican politicians either had no ability or no intention to fulfill. For example, the Republican bigwigs don't actually want to ban abortion. The GOP has no desire to abolish the IRS. When the Republicans last had a man in the Oval Office, says Martin Longman, he vastly increased the power of the Department of Education, created huge new prescription drug entitlement programs for the elderly. This wasn't some aberration. The Republicans who hold federal office aren't nearly as opposed to federal power as they'd like their base of supporters to believe. Something we've been talking about for years. No, Republicans don't like small government. They like big government. They just like to tell their voters they're in favor of small government because it, it pulls well. Longman goes on to point out that what we're seeing now is a growing realization that nominating another Bush and expecting these promises to be kept is Einstein's definition of insanity. Therefore, they're going, they're migrating to Trump. He says, until you understand what a massive fraud has been perpetrated on the right by the right, you will not begin to understand Trump's success. Before he could begin to be plausible, they first had to prepare the ground so that birtherism would strike these people as plausible. Donald Trump didn't do that, but he exploited it once it was done, and he's still exploiting it. So when no one you know thinks that Trump will be the nominee, maybe they're correct, he says. But maybe they just haven't thought this through because the consequences are too frightening and depressing to contemplate. I think that's exactly right. This is exactly, exactly what the Republican uh, in power, the Republicans in power, what they have asked for. They created this monster and now they have no idea how to get rid of it. Former Republican National Chair Michael Steele said, uh, told Bloomberg this week, That if you look at the whole Republican Party, from libertarians to evangelicals to the Tea Party, you have a group of people who have been lied to for 35 years. Republican presidential candidates have said, elect us and we'll do these things. Well, they haven't, and the frustration is manifesting itself in Donald Trump. Ed Kilgore adds at Washington Monthly, as responsible Republicans battle the chaos this has caused in the background, you can hear the soft clucking of chickens coming home to roost. I like that. We will be uh, following the clucking of those chickens and much more in the days and weeks and months ahead. My thanks today to Desi Doyen, our producer, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, to our guest, David Swanson of davidswanson.org and Ian Milheiser of thinkprogress.org. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can always download it at bradblog.com or over at iTunes, where we hope you will subscribe for free and leave us a good review while you're there. You can also find us and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Thank you.